Dynasty Blueprint with Matt Williamson and Ryan McDowell. Welcome back to the Dynasty Blueprint. I'm your host, Ryan McDowell, joined as always by Matt Williamson. Matt, you've been in Pittsburgh the past couple of days. How's that been? Well, I'm always in Pittsburgh, but I went to Steeler training camp the last two days, or OTAs, and I broadcasted live down there for two hours each day. Um, I'm going the next two days as well. I've been running around like crazy. Just got back from the gym. I'm all sweaty and gross, but our fans don't need to know that. Um, <laughs> today was awesome, though. Today was a beautiful day. They, they practiced right in front of us, and it was you know just great to see the guys running around in person. Yesterday, they went bowling, so there wasn't a whole lot to see. We just kind of did a show at the you know at the facility, but you know there's nothing to see there. Bowling. So it sounds like you've gotten to see one good day of practice. Um, yeah. It's OTAs, you know, maybe there's not much to take away from that, but have you seen anybody standing out so far? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, Antonio Brown is real good. <laughs> there's a late-breaking news. You know, seeing him live, though, was a little bit jaw-dropping to watch him run, I don't know, maybe eight to ten routes today that were just knock-your-socks-off jaw-droppers um, as good as he's ever looked that I've seen him live. Uh, Sammy Coates is impressive. Le'Veon Bell's not really doing anything. You know, Ben's out there, but so what? Le'Veon Green's not playing. So, you know, nothing super fantasy relevant from one day of practice. All right. Well, we are, um, if we haven't already, we're going to definitely live up to our name of the Dynasty Blueprint today. We're going to talk about Dynasty startup strategy and really building that team so you can compete for years to come. We've got a great guest. Chad Parsons is joining us. Uh, of course, Chad is the owner and, and operator and, and everything else over at Under the Helmet. He also does some dynasty work for football guys. Chad, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me this week, guys. Great to be here. So, Chad, we're going to, to really jump right into it. I know you have a, uh, a unique dynasty philosophy. Really, that's what you've built your site around. So, just in, in, a, in a few words, in a couple of sentences, give us an overview of that dynasty philosophy. Sure. Well, actually, Ryan, the two of us have kind of crossed paths over the years because of, of some similarities in how we build teams. We're actually in some leagues together, and you can kind of see some similarities there. But the main thing for me is insulating yourself over the first year or two of a dynasty league's existence from losing value as a roster, uh, kind of managing your roster in terms of a, you want to think of it as an investment portfolio, but what you want to do is prevent yourself from hemorrhaging value early on and kind of rise up through attrition, and that's independent sort of of hitting big on a lot of your your players and your, your targets in a startup draft or early rookie draft. So I would say that maybe is one overarching uh, short way of explaining um, what, quote-unquote, we do um, at, at UTH Dynasty. So as we go through um, just some different parts of that dynasty startup process today, we're going to kind of have some quick hitters. And I know, Matt, you had one that you wanted to check in with Chad about as we get yeah, started. Yeah, I get asked this a lot, and I sort of mixed opinions. Maybe we each can take a turn, you know, with our thoughts on it. But let's say instead, you know, if you're doing a startup draft, say it's a 12-team startup draft, and instead of pulling numbers out of a hat that says, okay, you got number three, so you're the third spot. But instead, if you get, you know, number one, you get to pick your spot in the first round in a snake draft. Where do you usually go? And I don't want to steal your guys' answer, so I'm going to go first. I mean, what I, what I usually do 
And it's always tempting to go to the top because, and I'm, we're going to get to this in a minute, Chad. I know you're a believer in trading in the, out of the first round, as am I. I kind of learned that from you. I've never told you that before. But you know, there's so much value you can get from the Beckham or whoever somebody absolutely loves with that 1-1. One, one. But generally speaking, because this is more true, the later in the draft you go, I really like to be in the middle, you know, like 6-7-8 if it's a 12-team draft. Because if, I, if I'm in the, in the seventh round and I'm torn between two dudes and I take one, I might get the guy in the round way back. Yeah, and that's something that, that I've been doing more, um, especially, as you just said, once you get beyond the first two, three rounds where you're specifically looking at zones and player value and here's who I want, here's the best values, right. zones early on, once you get to the middle uh, part of the draft in the end, right, you don't want to ever be too far away because then trades can be hard and then you're you're either reaching or maybe you just can't find the best value sometimes for your spots and to kind of get where you want for to build out the rest of your team. So I, I agree with that part, but I think the most value comes from the early rounds and it really depends on the format. Like for example, in quarterback flex or or premium formats, I'm not going to bail on round one. I'm not going to move, you know, I'm not comfortable with my first pick being the mid to late second round like I would be in a start one quarterback league. Um, so that's where I have two different philosophies with the startup. If it's one quarterback, regular, you know, PPR, I'll bail. I'll, my first pick will be 205, 210. I mean, if I have four picks around the 2-3 turn, I'm fine with that to start my team. But I don't want to miss out. Like, my targets for Superflex are usually... Russell Wilson or Jameis Winston, and the sweet spot for those guys this offseason seems to be maybe 107, 108, down to 111 maybe, and that's sort of the zone. I don't want to go past that because you could miss out on the quarterback run if you don't know how the draft is going to start. If you trade before, you know, kind of get out in front, as I promote, uh, on setting the market with a trade down. But before we get to Ryan, what do you what, let's focus a little bit more on just a, a standard one quarterback league. What are your thoughts then? Oh, just like you, I would completely bail. Um, I'm not too worried about the don't be in the middle of the round thing later on. I'll, I'll I'll be okay and manage it with trades or just getting my guys, you know, at every turn if if I need to. Um, so so my move is to trade down and trade out. Like uh, the the stereotypical move at UTH, we kind of talk about is if you trade from the top of round one, so get the highest position you can in the Kentucky Derby style that you outlined there of you, you get randomized, but then you get to select your spot. So I would take the highest one possible. If that's 101, if that's 103, whatever. And then I'm trying to get a second rounder, a third rounder, and a 17 first with that pick, with the trade down. And if I have to throw in, you know, an 8th or 10th or 12th rounder um, as the variable from my end in a startup pick uh, to get that deal done, I'll do it. But I want that second and third turn uh, selections and then a 17 first. Okay, so I'm picking 1-7, you're picking 1-1, one, one, yeah. and I offer you, what, 2-7, seven, 3-7, seven, and a 17 first for 1-1 one, one and a 10th rounder, you'll take it. And I would do it, yeah. Okay. I, I don't disagree, I would too. And 306, see, that's the other thing, is someone in the middle of the round, you really want an early third, because sometimes by the mid-third, you know, you might, you, you could be gone in terms of the, maybe if it's a Doral Green Beckham or Jordan Matthews or Dante Moncrief, like those are the guys in the early third that you can typically project, and I want to be on the inside part of that as opposed to on the outside looking in, otherwise I'd trade back again. So I think I agree with Chad uh, with a lot of what he said. Uh, if I have the choice, I'm taking the earliest pick I can 
and then looking to move down most likely. I guess the only difference or the only thing I would add is I prefer, you know, in a best case situation to make several moves down. So if I can move from 1-1 one, one down to 1-4 and pick up a third rounder or 17, I don't know if you could get a 17 first in that type of deal, but basically make several moves down, yeah. landing kind of in the same range as what Chad described, but just doing that in multiple moves. And, can, and I ask, can I ask you a question, Ryan? Because yeah. I've thought about and, and kind of coached people through some drafts where they've done that, and it seems like the overall haul, once they get done with things, they move back two, three different times, is they never really cash out and get that big haul because they're not moving far enough. And I know it kind of keeps your finger on the pulse of, well, here's two or three guys that I really like. Maybe it keeps you in the Allen Robinson kind of zone if you move to five and then, oh, well, I'll just trade from five to nine. And then you never really stay far out from, from your projections on what player you would target, but you never really can get someone to truly pay up. And you just kind of mentioned, well, maybe you can't even get a 17 first to make a move like that. And I just kind of wonder if, if that would cap your ultimate return. Yeah, I think it definitely could. And again, like I said, that's, that's a best-case situation. If you, can, yeah. you know, if you can move from one to four and get a, a third-rounder in the startup, and then you move from four to ten and get a second-rounder in the startup and then somewhere in the along the way you get that 17 first, then yeah, maybe it pays off. And it takes three owners to kind of pay up as opposed to just getting one that wants... You usually can find one guy that's that has a top five pick that'll pay the second and third because they're going to go, well, I can get Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham. How do I not want to start my dynasty team that way, you know? And then I'll win forever and ever. Yeah, and, and I'll win <laughs> for the next decade for both guys. I'm just right. dominant. Don't go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. I I know, uh, or I'm sorry. I don't. I'm not sure exactly, Chad, how long you've been playing Dynasty. I'm sure you've mentioned that along the way. But is this general strategy and this general mindset that you outline so much on UTH is that something that you started with as you began playing Dynasty, or has that really evolved over the years? Oh, it's it's it evolves every single year. And I was honestly, to use a term, I mean, I was just like everybody else, where my first startup was a train wreck. I, I remembered basically half the rounds in the in the top seven or eight. I did a cardinal sin that I could never, I cringe if I see anyone do it. And whether it's older players, whether it's injury highly injury-prone players. I remember taking Austin Colley, like, ridiculously high because, oh, look at his points per game. He rarely played. like, And he was a, a huge concussion risk at that point in time, and I just didn't see it. And it, there, I just look back, and there's so many lessons, and through that singular draft, I kind of learned a, a lot in terms of the next offseason. That's, that's why I tell people, do one startup draft. Don't do five your first offseason. Do one. Great and point. just kind of sit, learn your lessons, look around, keep your eyes open, and evaluate yourself and kind of see what you would change in that first 12 months, and then get back in the pool, and, and you're going to like your second one, your third one, and and the rest of your journey a lot more. So I did a lot of stuff wrong. I, I filled out my starting lineup thinking, you know, your first six, seven rounds, oh, fill your starting lineup. I remember I took two quarterbacks in the top 100 in a start one league, like just so many dumb things. And so, so I didn't. I started out just not knowing, and I kept researching and researching, and kept um, doing different iterations of of how to build teams. And it keeps refining. I mean, smaller degrees. You know, we're calibrating the weapon um, to a much finer detail now. But th those early few years, uh, just kind of figuring things out in the dark. 
You know what? In my first ever startup draft, and I want to say it was only four years ago, maybe five years ago, around this time of the year, I remember I was – it was my first ever Dynasty League, first ever startup draft, and I was picking – I was on the turn. The last pick in 112 and 2-1, and I took D'Angelo Williams and Drew Brees. <laughs> and that's, like, laughable now. And, and Williams was, what, 27, 28 probably? At that point, yeah, right. You know, And my thought process was – I can't wait all the way until three twelve to get a running back. I mean, I have to have one of those guys. Going to be left, right? I mean, what's what's possible? I mean, Drew Brees is going to play a million years, and he did. But so what? You know, I mean, you can't use those kind of picks on those guys. Yeah, and well, that's where we were back then. It was it was quarterback. Remember when quarterbacks were going in the first round and start ones? There was a year Stafford. I remember was like top ten, right, Ryan? I mean. In ADP, I remember it, there was two or three of them um, in the top ten or twelve, and and right running backs. I kind of feel like running backs in 2016 are going to come back around finally that we have some younger producers. But we had a really rough stretch of you got to go old if you want uh, a guy with a resume and with some production in his rear view. Yeah, we had that year. Um, I guess it was the off season of. I guess it was two years ago, maybe or three years ago, but Cam and Rogers and. Stafford. Uh, Stafford and Kaepernick, those guys were all top 20 overall players, yeah. which is wow. just, you know, even two or three years later seems seems crazy to think about. Michael Vick, oh, how about that? <laughs> Whoever took him. <laughs> so let's dig into some of the, I guess, some of the minutia of the UTH way and, and this strategy that you have built. It's really similar to the strategy that, that all three of us use in a startup draft and in building our teams. I know one part of that is generally avoiding running backs early, and you mentioned you know, maybe, maybe that's something that is evolving as, as we see Elliott and Gurley, and, and we have this promising class of 2017 coming, so maybe that's changing, but in general, I think it's safe to say that you do avoid running backs early in the draft, so talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, well, what I'm looking for is... Uh, you know, the runway I kind of talk about when you're building your team and also the longevity factor. I want to give myself a lot of seasons to kind of hit on players. And running back has a few things going against them positionally where their peak, I mean, you can make the argument that running backs are the most, when they hit and, and they're, they have an impactful, you know, 18, 20 points per game or even more in PPR. I mean, those are dominant title building seasons for them. But is it, are they going to stay healthy? And then I look at the flip side, and running backs are the best investment with late-round picks. So really, if you go running back early, you're minimizing the impact of those later-round running backs that could be starters for you and you got on the cheap. And when you go early, I kind of feel like you're buying the, uh, what. here's what they could do optimally, and it's going to be in a small window. And so if you take a guy, like Lamar Miller to me is a good example. He's right in the middle of his peak production window, but how much can he really rise because as the years accrue and I mean situational change and all that but just with going running back early I feel like you're trying to shoot the needle and get those magical seasons David Johnson might be an example in 2016 but if you don't get it I, I think it's a huge hindrance because the whole goal is to get a stable asset where you know they're going to be top 40 top 50 for the first couple of years you own them that's ideal and so I try to get uh, assets early on that maybe they haven't hit their their peak yet or or if they have I think they're relatively stable in a lot of facets of their profile and wide receivers fit that mold whereas running backs 
If they don't get the goal line looks, what if they don't get third down? What if they get hurt? What if they draft? I mean, it's 2017 class. What if they draft a guy next year? What if a TJ Yeldon type situation happens where they bring in someone of prominence? Whether or not it, it affects them, but it will affect their market. And so all those factors for me just make me want to avoid running back because I feel like they're the cherry on top. Where if I'm a dominant team, I'll go out, I'll buy a running back if I really want to, or I feel like I need it. Um, but I want to buy that production when it matters, which is in season and not starting out my team because I don't even know if those running back points are going to help me in year one because I'm just kind of feeling out and seeing how many of my players hit and are on the upswing of, of their production arc. And I think something you said there is a key point when you're rebuilding a, a dynasty team as well, not just doing that startup draft. I don't worry about running backs until I'm ready to contend. So trade them all away. Trade them. You can't draft it. Like if you're a rebuilding team, you can't take Ezekiel Elliott at one and hold him thinking he's your centerpiece. You can't do that. We've I got bet there's people out there saying that's crazy talk. And Chad, while I'm with you, let's <laughs> expand on that. What you just said there. That there, you're not saying don't take him. I mean, you're not saying I'm take. I'm saying Treadmore you can't. He's an asset. I'm saying if you can't trade 101, that Ezekiel Elliott should be a tradable piece. Because here's the thing. If, it, if, if you have Elliott and maybe you got one receiver that could be kind of a core asset, but you're still building out. You're probably a year or two away. You're burning up Ezekiel Elliott's prime years. And who knows? It may not be his rookie year, but a lot of things can go wrong. I mean, Dallas is not this bulletproof situation. Their offensive line had played out of their minds a couple years ago. What if that doesn't happen? I know some of them are up for contracts and Romo factor of injuries and he's duct taped together. So all these things could make Elliott, I mean, he's already in the first round of startups. I mean, where else can he go? He can't go anywhere. So it's the perfect storm right now and he hasn't played it down. So he's really insulated. And if you trade him away, you get a couple receivers for him. Say you, you trade down with the, the 101 and get a receiver you like, a 17 first, a, a later first. I mean... Just get a package so you can actually build out that, that depth. Because if you have a running back and you have two other players of prominence and that's it, it's going to take you forever to rebuild. But if you divest from that singular running back, it, it, like you said, Ryan, get a Danny Woodhead type two years from now when you're ready. Or, or then you can start drafting running backs if you see fit in the rookie draft setting. But all those things, running back is the last thing you need to address just because the peak window for them what, two, three years, and if you get beyond that uh, of, of production-dependable week-in and week-out uh, known workload, that's just a bonus. That's a historic-type uh, run, like we saw with Marshawn Lynch or a few others in recent years um, in their peak. So you just you can't waste it like that, so you gotta, you got to trade the asset or be willing to, to cash out at a moment's notice. So, Chad, you're... You're picking 101, and you earned it. You know, your team's bad. Yeah. You know, you yeah. just, or you inherited the guy before you earned it. Whatever. You have a yeah. lot of work to do with this team. Yeah. And and I have a a good team, an obvious contender, and you know I'm in my prime, so to speak, and I'm going to go for it. You know, and, and you're picking 101, and I say, I have Kevin White, Devontae Parker. You can have one of those two, and my 17 first, which we both think will be later. I hope it's 12th. Are you doing it? Um, in a vacuum, I'm fine with that deal, but I know I can squeeze more than 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 the a, a high strong contenders first and 
and Kevin White or Parker. So, like a little something extra? I don't not a little like a like a, a mid to late second. I mean, we right. can get a bigger argument, but I, I think seventeen firsts are gonna be a tad overvalued from everything I've seen in the market right now. Um, but yes, I would be looking for a prototypical wide receiver I like, and then more. And as much more, I would be shopping it to all 11 teams, whether they're contenders or rebuilders, because we, as we just alluded to, some people think you take Ezekiel Elliott no matter what. So I, I know he's pretty liquid and he would appeal to most teams in most leagues. Shop, 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 shop. Sure. Another key factor of your strategy, the UTH way, is favoring those younger players. And you've talked about why a little bit already as far as they're insulated, they have a, a good chance to gain value, and it's really tough for those those rookies to lose value in year one. I've, we've talked about that before, Chad. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't... The, the biggest part for me is I don't... I'm a big... I roll my eyes at NFL contracts when I feel like teams are paying for past production. I'm a big... I'm going to pay for, pay for what I think you're going to do in the future. So... I, with with players, I'm looking to get guys that are 21 to 24 per se, or maybe they like a Jarek McKinnon, for example. I I like him because of what I think he can do, not based on the rear view of what he has done. Because I feel like you get into trouble when you look at some some guy's resume for three four years and and say, well, I'm buying that. I'm buying 17 points per game this year because the moment he doesn't do it, Brandon Marshall is a good example. Look at his historic run from his late 20s to his early 30s, and if you're paying for that, I think you're going to be woefully disappointed, and then your exit is going to be for a fraction of what you pay this offseason, because there's only downside. He's held on, you know, gripping and clawing to his, his market value only because he's stayed healthy and done all those great things, and it could crumble around him in one way or another. So for He's the, already the, beat the odds. Yeah, he's already been an outlier, and that, that's a good point. Is I hate betting on outliers, and when you do that with older players, I, I feel like that's when you get into a, an orphan-like situation when people run away from their teams, and you can kind of rewind and see, well, two years ago they took all these flashy names, and they were all sort of eroding or on unsteady ground market value-wise. So I want the young guys, and, and people kind of think I, I'm a little too aggressive, but I just keep going in this direction because I keep seeing positive team-building results by doing it more and more and being more bold with those calls in a startup draft where people will say, oh, you'll never contend, and then in year two, like, uh, my roster value is double what theirs is, and they thought they crushed it. And it's just, you do that over and over again because you can be more aggressive. And here's another point. is If you own, only own one dynasty team, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be tough to build your team this way, but if you have a whole portfolio, if you got one team that's kind of building up every single year in year one, it doesn't really, it doesn't really phase you st setting that starting lineup knowing you're not going to probably finish all that well because you've got some other dominant teams um, in the pipeline that you've been um, cultivating over the years. All right, you two. I'm going off script here as usual. Sorry, oh, yeah. Ryan. You'll get used to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a very good team. It's one of my first, you know, took it over from nothing, and it's about where I want to be. I, I wouldn't trade it for any roster in the league. And I went into this draft, this rookie draft, 2016 draft, with zero picks, which I've been doing in a lot of my drafts. I have three 17 firsts and two 18 firsts. So I took Des Bryant and RG3, which who cares, and I got locked, and my problem was the bottom of my roster wasn't very good. And I was starting to say, boy, I'm on the edge here about starting to get a little older than I want. 
So I traded basically Des Bryant for Lockett, Mike Thomas, Funchess, Jonathan Williams, and Bilal Powell. And Twitter killed me for it. How could you get rid of Des for all those guys that aren't going to be anything? I'll do it again in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, that's what strong teams that, as you just outlined, when they're getting a little on the older side, you pick your guy. Who's the guy that maybe has the most market or name appeal, and how many pieces of young potential and upside can I turn that into? Because otherwise you die on the vine. If you just sat there and you could probably enjoy your team for another couple of years without basically doing anything, but you're eventually going to die on the vine and rot. And Des Bryant, I think, is a pretty good one. He's always been a little more inconsistent than you would think the talent or the, the year-end production. It seems like he goes away in games. If Romo misses more time, uh, he wasn't that great. The offense wasn't that great last year. There's some reasons to think that there's uh, some dents in that, that armor. So I, I love moves like that. And, yeah, you get crushed. And I always find in those Twitter polls and stuff like that that, Generally, I'm on the opposite side of what the consensus is, which makes me think I'm onto the onto the right thing. Because a lot of times, if everyone's doing something, you should probably do the opposite in a lot of facets of life. So, Chad, let's say you're in you're in a dynasty startup draft. Everything is going your way. You were able to trade down. You've picked up some some extra picks and some 2017 first. You're hammering young wide receivers. Is there any point where you're going to start considering? Drafting those veterans uh, of any position? Sure. Um, I, I remember I took Marshawn Lynch in like round 22. You know, I'll take guys that late if I think they have upside in terms of being able to flip them. Um, and, and flip them meaning you think I, it's possible I get a second round rookie pick out of them because by that time you're looking at fourth, fifth round rookie picks in the, the startup setting. But it, it's got to be really late. I remember doing a draft with uh, Doug Veach a few years ago, and we took guys like MJD and Steven Jackson, like outside round 18 or 19. And the whole idea was, well, they have name value if they come back. And MJD, I think, got some run with the Raiders, and Steven Jackson emerged with a couple games of note that year, and we were able to flip both of them. And, and that's sort of what it is. It needs to be almost at the very end because I'm only looking to sell them if possible because the odds of actually hitting on a guy... Um, in that zone are so tremendously low, that's when I would consider it. it is, and and it, it, it's different. Again, I'll go for an older quarterback um, if that strikes me. Usually I don't get to that point, but if it's around 15, round 18, I mean, Drew Brees is almost getting to that zone where you can kind of consider him as a, a stopgap um, depending on the cost. So quarterback might be the, the, the lone exception, but it's got to be outside the top 200 or so for me to consider other positions. One thing I urge people to do is every time I start a new league, I start a spreadsheet, and one of the tabs is startup draft. One of the other tabs is rookie picks that I haven't made yet, and the other one's my roster. So, you know, I sit there and I make my picks in the startup draft, and then I go back like three years later and look at it and been like, man, my last ten picks got me zero. You know, if I could turn That's any scout, of them yeah. in, yeah, and if I can turn any of those into a future third, uh, that would have been a great deal, and that's kind of what I think you're saying. Like that MGD shows up for a month in in Oakland, turn yeah. him into a future third, and it's something. It's an asset. It's something, yeah. And I think not a lot of people do what you just said because the the odds are abysmal outside the top 150 or so. I mean, really, if you can hit on two or three players that significantly rose in value beyond that point in your startup draft, you hit an absolute home run, 
and you crush the league. So just know that the odds are astronomical against you, literally like 5% or so, that you're going to get someone that rises up. Think like a, a Charles Johnson a few years ago. Remember, he was worth nothing, and mm-hmm. then he rose up. He was a starter for like six to eight weeks of note in Minnesota. That sort of rise. And you do some research on the positions that can do that. Typically, it's running back because they can flash situationally. Uh, maybe it's an undervalued quarterback. Uh, that you get that can kind of stick and be a committee member. Um, maybe it's tight end, but usually it's not wide receiver. I pointed out Charles Johnson, but typically it's not wide receiver, which is why I kind of flip the script uh, of uh, of a typical draft for people in redraft, say, where you hit running back early and often, you can kind of get wide receiver later. Well, I feel like it's opposite, where wide receivers are a bad investment in startup drafts really late, and you want to go for everything else. And if you know that in the early rounds, that's why you feel comfortable avoiding running back until sometimes like round 10 because you go, six of my next 10 picks could be running back. Yeah, so along those same lines, Chad, and what you were mentioning with your later picks, when I'm drafting, one thing I try to ask myself is, what is the situation or what would need to happen for this player to be worth a first-round pick? So again, yeah. thinking about flipping that player. And you know, is there a situation where uh, Marshawn Lynch could be worth a first-round a first pick? Well, sure, if he changes his mind, he comes back and, and he's a starter in the league, there's a good chance somebody is going to give you a, a late first-round pick or an early second-round pick. In season when he's getting touches, right. Exactly, in season. you got to have that plan. you got to create that storyline, as you said. And running back, it's typically easier. All you have to do is say, hey, it gets an injury or two. That, that's going to be the common default line of, of almost any of those backs, whether they're rookies um, or just kind of beat-up veterans. Well, even guys like, you know, you mentioned Woodhead. I think we talk about Danny Woodhead on, on every podcast. Is there a situation where he's going to be worth a first-round pick? There's really not. You know, he was RB3 last year in PPR leagues. He tore up the league. He, Melvin Gordon had surgery. He's still not worth a first-round pick. So, well, you can't set the bar at first round, I feel. I, I think you really should be looking, is it someone I could package with a third to get a second? I mean, that's still a windfall of value coming from the depths of startups. So unless it's going to be someone like Woodhead you're going to use in your starting lineup, I mean, you kind of have to, and I like to say, tell the story of your ownership of a player the moment you draft him. Is this someone that when they flash a little bit, I'm going to be bolting for the door and, and shopping around the league, or is this someone I legitimately like? And there's not a right answer for how many of each type you should have, but just if you know that going in, I think it'll refine your outlook when a player or if a player does flash in the future. Chad, this isn't something we've talked about yet on the Dynasty Blueprint, but I've heard you talk about it uh, on your podcast many times, and even when I was a guest we had this conversation, and I very much believe in it. And you just said it now that if you can use a guy to move from round three to round two, I bet that just went over a handful of our listeners' heads, like, eh, whatever, okay. That's a huge, that's a huge windfall. I mean, yes. that's a big deal. From round 20 of a startup, that is that's hitting a triple. It's not necessarily yeah. a home run, but it's a it's a triple. Just again, look at a startup draft from 2013, heck, 2014, and just look at the list starting at 150 overall or so. Go through the rest of the draft and the number of people that just blow picks on kickers or defenses or third quarterbacks or guy. Just look at the storylines of the players since since drafting, and you'll be amazed at. Just you're gonna throw away 95% of those players and just go. It doesn't even. It didn't even matter what you did, going back in time. So you have to say, what's the prototype? What's the story of the players who have risen? And you just sort of start connecting the dots 
and saying who are players in the league currently that, that fit that mold that could. Now, you're probably increasing your odds from 5% to 10%, but again, that's huge. And if you hit on three or four, you're going to be the envy of the league on the back end. Chad, you mentioned this a little bit earlier uh, as far as a two-quarterback league, but how have you found that your strategy changes when you do play with those different settings, whether it's uh, a quarterback flex or tight end premium or multiple running back starters? How does that change things for you? It changes a ton um, because I'm one that I'm going to go cheap at quarterback. If I find a guy, I'm still going to look to sell. I've sold Aaron Rodgers this offseason. I've sold Andrew Luck. I'm looking to just get more pieces. I'm willing to go cheap and undervalued and kind of, I know, Matt, you kind of go on an annual basis. Who do I think undervalued? Who do I think is overvalued? And uh, let me swap those guys and get, get something more in the trade market. And with quarterback, I do that all the time in start one. Starts two, um, super flex, and, and when you get the pumped up scoring, you really got to, I feel, flip it. And I've, I've done startups where I've gone with four quarterbacks in the first six rounds. I feel like it fits perfectly with the UTH way of building out a typical start one league with wide receivers where I think with quarterbacks, you kind of corner the market. Let me get a guy, a, a solid guy like an Eli Manning as my number three that I could potentially flip down the road because there's going to be teams that are left out on the cold with one starting quarterback, and they might not think, oh, I'll just I'll flex a wide receiver. Well, guess what? Your fourth, fifth, sixth wide receiver isn't scoring like Eli Manning and Superflex. Sorry. Um, so you're losing a lot of points on a weekly basis. So if you get two or three young core guys, you also get one or two vets, maybe a, an upside backup like a Ryan Nassib or something heading into 17 free agency or a Mike Glennon. I mean, you get guys like that then you have five, six guys at the most premium position. So I, I turn it around and give me all the quarterbacks. And don't play chicken. I'll keep taking them and, until the value has gone when I set up my overall board. And, and I'll figure it out because, again, I want assets and quarterbacks, the longevity factor, the consistency year to year, everything aligns with I, I just haven't seen a team in a super flex league have a glut uh, of quarterbacks and say that, oh, my team stinks. I have a problem because I have too much <laughs> of the most valuable position in the league and ha I have trouble trading. It, typically, you can kind of go out there and no other team is going to have a third or a fourth NFL quality starter to just shop around frivolously. So you will be the market in, in, in terms of trading. People will have to come to you because even if someone has two quarterbacks, they're going to feel like they're both starters. They can't part with any of them. And so they have to kind of come to you or maybe one or two other teams in the league, and you guys set the market and can ask for almost whatever you want. Chad, along those lines, I've never done two quarterback or super flex leagues yet. And I was listening to a podcast over the weekend. I wish I remember who it was, and if somebody remembers, great, tell me. But they brought up the point that if you're drafting, you know, obviously quarterbacks go very, very fast in a dynasty startup in that situation. But if you draft Carr, Bortles, Mariota, we know that crew. I mean, the, the really promising young guys that go very, very high in those drafts, go very early. You also have a little bit of a dilemma, though, that are you comfortable starting them? You know, I mean, you just use a second-round pick or third-round pick on Marcus Mariota, but he's only like the 20th quarterback in redraft of that year, you know? So is that a dilemma for you, or or you, or you just jump all over it and take Phillip Rivers in the next round, or, you know, Eli Manning or Breeze? Or... Well, you said quarterback 20, and what I want to tell people that, like you, you know, if you haven't played in Superflex, the baseline is if, in a 12-teamer, 
two quarterbacks is optimal to start for any team in the league. I mean, unless you've got the absolute worst starter. I mean, think back to Brandon Whedon. I mean, maybe he's not better than your running back or wide receiver flex, the number 32 guy in fantasy. But in general, starting two is what you want. So if he's quarterback 20, that's a middle-of-the-road super flex option at your quarterback two spot. So, but it's one of your best assets, and there's 19 guys in the position that are better than him. That's true, but you have to kind of move out to the, the, the new baseline, which is think about bye weeks. Think about injuries that sure. at quarterback, you are SOL in season if one of those things happened to you and you were a contender and you were starting a guy that was averaging 17, 18, 19 points per game a week. Now he's gone and you are, I mean, you're going to start a guy that's 10 points per game per week. Look how that could tilt the end of the year scenarios for you. That could cause you to drop two or three weeks alone with that five to ten point per game drop. And so I just kind of say you have to obviously scout quarterback a lot closer than you do in a start one where you just kind of, eh, whatever, give me two, three solid guys later and I'm fine. But, I mean, Mariota's not really one of my target guys. I'm a little leery of Bortles as well, uh, of guys you mentioned. But you just kind of have to look at the longevity factor. Um, I have some baselines in terms of predictability with what they've done to this point in their career that can kind of give some comfort factor on who to actually select, but it's very sound in terms of positional value to to have an excess of quarterbacks in the early rounds because by outside the top 100 or so, they will be gone. Alex Smith, who is kind of the last guy in the sand, he's older, he's got a low ceiling, he doesn't throw more than seven yards in the air very often. I mean, we, all, we know all the jokes, but in Superflex, he's the last guy. You miss out on that boat. I mean, you're taking Cardale Jones. You're taking a lot of guys that who knows if they ever start in the NFL. And, Matt, I think your question, too, is, you know, I think it's similar in a one-quarterback league to taking a young wide receiver in the second or third round. You know, you might take Treadwell or, uh, you know, Dante Moncrief or Green Beckham. And then you get to September and think, eh, they're not, they're not really starters. I took the them in the receiver 40, right. Exactly. I spent yeah, a top. Same thing. You know, I spent a top 20 or 24 pick on this guy, but I'm not starting him week one. If a quarterback's a starter in the NFL, they're a starter in Superflex for you, period. And so with wide receiver, it's kind of the same way as you were saying. If they get up 87 targets their rookie year, they're probably in the wide receiver 40 or 50 range. And what does that do? I mean, right, he's a fringe guy. Maybe you rotate him in. Maybe like Parker gets hot late in the season. But it's more of a simmering, longer-term view than what am I going to do week five. So, Chad, what about the kind of the same question in two running back leagues? So I, I think a lot of the leagues that we we all play in and that are growing in, I guess, in popularity in recent years are mandatory one running back leagues, but, uh, of course, you have flex options. But there's still tons of leagues that require two running backs to start each week, and that's probably still the standard or, or the norm. So if you're in one of those leagues where you have to start two every week, does that change your startup uh, or your team-building strategy at all? It doesn't because looking at the baselines, uh, sort of my process in getting ready for a league, when I join one or I find out I'm going to, to draft, I will do a draft board, kind of like Matt was saying, you know, you put, whether it's target players, you get all the, whether it's ADP or your own value list, so you're going to track everything that's going on, but get a lay of the land in terms of the format, and the baselines don't really change whether it's start one or start two if you get a lot of flex positions. I know, Ryan, like your hyperactive leagues, uh, it still kind of comes out to the, the optimal point per game strategy is starting 
two running backs a week. It's still two and, you know, three or four wide receivers is sort of what the, the format dictates. Now, you don't have to build your team that way, but that that's sort of how it the, the lay of the land. And so in a start two running back league, I actually look forward to those because I'm still going to go late running back. Uh, I, if anything, other owners are going to go earlier, which is going to help me out in the mid-rounds, getting one or two extra wide receivers that maybe I wouldn't get a shot on otherwise. But running backs, it still goes back to they need optimal volume. Uh, they need to stay healthy to have that perfect season, the Doug Martin 2015, the perfect season of health and usage and and goal line looks or carries or some combination. Uh, they need to hold that job contractually or just there's so many variables and there's one per team that you truly want. I mean, maybe Charles Sims is a backup, but just I feel like you're you're trying to shoot the needle so much with running back, and the only exception I'll make, and you mentioned start two running back, but there's point per carry leagues out there, and that's the exception I'll make. That's the super flex version of of running back premium, where if they get you know a quarter point per carry, workhorses, that's an extra three to four points per game just based on getting the ball tucked into their stomach on a weekly basis. So I will make an exception for that. I did have one of those leagues as a startup months ago. And I, yeah, I, I hit running back. And actually, I, I think I drafted more running backs than wide receivers in my startup draft um, because I, I feel like quarterbacks in a super flex, I'm going to be able to trade those in season to kind of balance out my team a little more. But they were the best assets available in the startup. So that's just a few thoughts on, on how you kind of shift. I wouldn't shift it unless the scoring specifically dictated it. You have become known for this strategy. It's it's now known, I guess, as the UTH way, and you know, going young, acquiring draft picks, and, and some of the things you've talked about. I wrote an article based around a similar idea called the productive struggle. The idea of that was describing the startup draft where you would load up on young players, wide receivers, almost ignore running backs, and accept losing in that first year, and. With that losing, of course, in, in most leagues at least, would come a very high rookie draft pick, which you could then you know add to your team of already young players, and, and now you're set to contend in year two. So that's kind of the idea behind the productive struggle, and I know your strategy has a lot of similarities to that. Are there any differences that you know of just based on our conversations and, and your activity around different leagues? Not really. Um, those are good articles, by the way. I think you wrote, what, two or three different installments or parts, um, either over the years or all in that singular um, off-season. And, yeah, I think part of it is what I kind of say, the question I pose to people that maybe are resistant to, to building, as I say, I say, would you rather have a little bit better odds to win one year or would you rather have a lot better odds to win every year? Um, because I think people live in that microwave society, instant feedback uh, instant communication. I mean, we have so many outlets to do that um, today that they want their team, if they're coming from redraft, they want their team to be competitive every year. But I always say the most expensive year to try to win is year one because you're going to be buying, you have to kind of buy older players because those are going to be the ones in your startup draft that are cheaper. Um, every, every step of the way, you can go 28-year-old running back, 31-year-old wide receiver, and you can build a quote-unquote monster team based on what they scored a couple years ago. And so... I, I tell people, though, that you're going to sacrifice on the back end by doing it that way. So I've, ha I've actually had 
UTH quote unquote built teams, and my favorite one was one where I traded out. I didn't pick till 208, I believe, in a 2012 startup, and I won in year one. And I've done that across my leagues at, at various points, but that's just an ancillary benefit. So for people that think if you draft sort of the way we've discussed that you cannot win year one, that's false. Um, you can, and it's just good luck league if you win in year one because that's going to be the easiest year to beat um, you know, a productive struggle or UTH built team because you generally are going to have more upside guys, more rookies, more guys on the, the early part of their production curve. So this is the time to get them is the year one or maybe even year two of the league because after that, largely in terms of projecting who's going to have the best chance to win every year, the league is over at that point. And so if you can kind of sacrifice that first year, your odds go up in comparison to the rest of the league quite a bit because as you said, uh, just a bonus is if you can add some of those rookie picks and then you get a high draft position as an ancillary benefit of, of logging those losses because you just don't have the short-term production horses. And just to elaborate on that, I mean, if you've done this a year ago and you have a team loaded with Perryman and White and DGB and you know you don't score hardly any points this past year, and then you go well, then I'll add Elliot to the mix and two one as well. You, you know, like, it's like, yeah. How do you like Elliot? Now I'm pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right, and and 2014, 2015 were prime years to do this because the rookie picks were so rich with wide receiver production and and pedigree. So those are really the years, and who knows, 17 might be another year where. You just go, you know, almost all rookies in your startup draft setting, or or promising second or third year guys, and then it's it's another just booming year of business for for building your teams in this fashion. You know, we talk a lot about that 2014 class that gave us, uh, you know, Sammy Watkins, Mike Evans, and OBJ, and Allen Robinson, and so many of these great players, especially at the wide receiver position. If you went UTH productive struggle, if you use that strategy that season, your team is probably set for years to come at this point. But is it fair, do you think, to to say that either of these are successful strategies if you're looking only at that year, or, or is that more of an outlier? Um, I think, well, I, I think there's value in every single year. Um, like Matt said, I mean, he, he's been having less rookie picks than general, in, in general, for 2016, and I, I kind of promote that or I kind of think the value is a little later on and you kind of pick your spots a little more carefully but yeah I mean there's going to be better years because the the perfect storm of maybe some some second incoming second year players that haven't quite produced to a high level you mentioned Perriman or someone like Dante Moncrief I think had a bit of a raw deal last year and is, is underpriced considering what happened in Indianapolis but Every year, I think, is their own dynamic, so it's almost like that's what's fascinating for us and why we want to get in there and draft startups every year is because it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle of what is the market telling us with, with value? What kind of teams can I build? It's going to be different players annually, but the construct of strategy can be the same, and yet you're just looking to mine as much initial profit from the draft as possible. So one, uh, when I mentioned your appearance on Twitter, one of my followers, and, and probably your followers as well, asked us to talk about this, the differences between productive struggle and the UTH way. And he said, UTH gets slammed for this. So I don't know how much negative feedback you've taken or you've seen. I feel like you know, when I'm explaining productive struggle, it's easy to convince somebody to build their team around wide receivers. It's easy to convince somebody to build a team full of young players. 
But when you get to that that losing, and and it's not you know it's not tanking. It's building around young young players that are probably not going to score well for you in that first year. But when you get to that point of you're probably going to lose in year one. You know you're you're donating the the fifty or the hundred dollar entry. Whoa, fee. Why do I want to do that? I'm not. Yeah, that's. That's where I've, I I'm not get in this for losing money, Ryan. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. That's that's the part that's hard to swallow for a lot of people. So, how much I guess how much negative feedback have you seen and and how do you deal with that? Plenty. I've actually had people DM me along the way and ask if I'm okay. Like if if you you can't make it to this point and I'm sure both of you know this of if you if you have a podcast, if you have a website, if you put yourself out there in a lot of respects, whether it's predicting what's going to happen the following season or your draft takes or anything. You mean like writing for ESPN for 10 years? Right. If <laughs> anything in that regard, <laughs> scouting, right, you're going to have critics. It's actually a good thing, and you need to kind of embrace it because you're, it means you're getting somewhere. It means that you at least have an audience that there's people listening, and and you're going to have haters just like you're going to have, have, have huge super fans. So it goes both ways, and I think... The part that I would say I get not needled, but would be the let's shoot, let's shoot at the UTH sort of team building philosophy the most is sort of the people think that so once you get a guy like an Allen Robinson, once you get a guy like Odell Beckham, the moment they produce, you know, when they have that big season, oh, it's time to trade them. That they're and and the running joke is, you know, a 24-year-old stud wide receiver. Well, he's too old for my team. You know, yeah, let's turn awesome. him into Corey Coleman and Will Fuller, and let's move on with our day. Um, and that's sort of where the divide is, where people kind of take a strategy, and they're going to keep going with it in terms of, oh, well, if you did this before, if you'll trade Des Bryant at 27 years old or Demarius Thomas at 28 or something, obviously that means you'll trade Allen Robinson at 22 or you know or you're going to look to offload any productive younger player and it doesn't work that way um, I mean this philosophy I mean the amount of hours I've spent doing historical research that's the only reason I'm saying the things I say is because to me it makes conceptual and and analytical sense in terms of team building so I'm kind of looking ahead and while Allen, so again, Allen Robinson, you look at his future, basically wide receivers that produce before 24 or so, it's all just a bonus. I mean, so when you get a guy, I mean, he's on a historic track. Anybody that puts up, you know, 16, 17 points per game or more this young just doesn't happen outside of these, these outliers the last few years and a few names over the course of time. So I, I think when people kind of jump ahead to level 12, you know, of saying, well, Allen Robinson, you got to sell him for two first-round picks in 17 because you got to cash out now. Uh, that's sort of where it goes from kind of being critical and then going to like sort of a joking, like, well, let's go all the way to the extreme then if you mean to sell production. And, you know, I never want a starting lineup that's any good. I mean, Ryan and I are in leagues together, and, you know, it's a challenge. And you kind of mentioned Matt selling Des Bryant at a point where you say, you know, who's the guy to sell? Because there's always value to be had from your roster, but the sell isn't going to be, unless, again, every player's for sale, but typically someone's not going to pay the asking price of what it is to get um, in an existing league someone like Allen Robinson, for example. But it's always about getting the most roster value you can. And sometimes, yeah, you could sell that, that young player for two to three or four um, prime assets that can keep you competitive for longer and insulate you from injuries, whereas 
you're not selling to sell. What you're doing is trying to create the best roster you can. And honestly, some, some rosters are so good, losing Allen Robinson off your starting lineup doesn't hurt you at all. That's just the facts of being a, a truly dominant team. And, and along the lines of like a Des Bryant or Demarius Thomas a year ago, like that, that ship's kind of sailed right now. You can't get enough for him. Right. But Des, let's say Des Bryant and Tony Romo combine to play 10 to 16 games next year. What are you going to get for Des then? Well, you're going to get a lot closer than you're getting now, is what I would say, um, which is why... No, I mean, have, if they combine. If Dez plays six oh, and Romo plays eight, together, okay. you're going to get nothing for him. Right, and that's what... You kind of have to have the feel. I always look at guys who are coming into a critical year where this is they're insulated right now, but if it goes sideways on them either a second straight year or they've just had a cascade of things happen, like a lot of people are, are surprised I'm not higher on Jordan Reed, and I say... People forget about the injuries until the next one. And the next one, I feel, for Jordan Reed as an example, it's going to crush his value. And you kind of have to look at it from that, that formula. As you said, if Romo, you know, the duct tape comes apart, Des Bryant, it was a lost year, completely last year. And he's been someone that's gone away for halves or three quarters of a game at a time if, if he doesn't get early targets. So I kind of feel, and then they got Elliott. They're going to pound the rock. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that could go against him that can make it seem like you should have cashed out because you're going to get... I mean, what if you get Josh Doxson and a 17 first? That's going to sound crazy to a lot of people selling Des Bryant for that. But fast forward to 2017, you got Doxson as probably the lead guy in town. You've got a 17 first that everyone's going to want. That's not a bad deal. Right. And even Des, as productive as he is, I think he's a great player. He's never been a target monster. He's always underperformed to the talent, I've always felt, of those top guys that we've we've swirled around for the last four or five years. And I don't trust Romo to stay on the field, to be honest. I mean, that's the thing that's I'm really kidding. hanging around. Right. I mean, Romo doesn't he, trust Romo to stay on the field. Right. I think he's the most brittle quarterback in the league. Right. And that's another thing. People are taking Tony Romo as their second starter in a Superflex league. That's a time bomb. You can't make that pick. And so that's... But yeah, so that's an offense where you, you tell the story and you go, there's a lot more downside than upside with someone like Des Bryant here. So let's get back a little bit to some specific startup draft strategy. Chad, as you're nearing the end of your of a typical startup draft, is there any certain positional makeup that, that you try to have? Do you always want to end a draft with three quarterbacks in a start one? Or talk about that a little bit, if there's any set standard or if you just are looking to load up on talent. Yeah, it's always best player, um, and that'll kind of differ a little bit based on the, the format, but your typical start one quarterback, you know, say it's a couple running backs, three to four receivers, that type, and, and not tight in premium or anything. I just kind of look at the lay of the land when you look at late ADP or guys that are typically available in those last five to ten picks you'll have. Typically, it's running back, some of these upside primary backups, or heck, even a number three guy in a murky depth chart situation Tight ends always seem like you can you can find a guy that's either going to be a, a starter this year in some capacity for their NFL team or someone with some juice uh, to maybe emerge. Um, so those are two positions. I don't really look, you know, in terms of I need this many. I will kind of look at the at the the waiver the projected waiver wire. I mean, if there's going to be no quarterbacks, I'll probably grab one more than I normally would in a start one just because have that coverage. Um, but otherwise, I, I, I just want the best players, whether 
it's going to be a short-term flash guy that we discussed earlier in the show or something somebody that I really like their long-term talent. But typically, tight end and running back um, are more common in my later round picks than my early round picks. So let's go beyond the draft and even beyond the first season of a startup league or a new dynasty league. So you've drafted your team, you've built around young players, heavy on wide receivers, and you've taken your lumps in year one, and maybe you have the 1.01 or 1.02 in 2017. According to, to UTH and, and your plan, what is next? What, what do you do in that offseason after year one or even in that second season? Yeah, the, the roadmap is typically the first six months. So say you drafted in the offseason, whether it's March or, or May or June, whatever it is, that typically that first season you kind of sit on your hands because you probably didn't draft many flip players. I mentioned MJD or there's some from real late potential players that could fit that mold. But in general, you're just kind of simmering. You know, you got the you got the stove on, you're kind of heating up that recipe. You got it in the in the pot. It's starting to smell good. Um, but you're taking all those rookies and those second or third year players. And what you're hoping to do is just sort of outlast through attrition half the teams in the league. Because they're probably drafted closer to redraft style, closer to I want to win a title. Half of them or more are going to be highly disappointed in their results. Hopefully one of those teams is the one that traded their hubris, you know, filled with hubris, 2017 first to you. So you're basically waiting. Not a lot of trades get done uh, in the, the people I coach and, and our subscribers and stuff for the, the, the first six to nine months, I kind of say. You just want guys that aren't going to hemorrhage value, and typically those are older players. So once you get to the next offseason, entering year two, what you do is then you really kind of squeeze people because you're probably going to have more assets that people desire now that we're a year removed. Um, they took players that they thought were going to be productive and they took them high up in the draft. And so that didn't work out. Usually the odds typically, even for redraft, you kind of look at the year before, half of them aren't going to be there. You know, half QB1s are going to be gone, half of running back ones gone from the past year. So you didn't draft any of those guys, which is the good news because you have lower odds of missing, truly missing, and, and the value being just puff of smoke gone forever. Um, so what I do in that year too, and, and advocate, so you have those high rookie picks. Now it's where the fun part. You have a bunch of rookie picks, um, a few probably high up in the draft, and now you get your scouting hat on. You really dive into that class because you have the assets. Now it's do you pull the trigger, um, you make the best picks possible, you shop them, of course, to see if maybe there's a better deal on the marketplace. Um, but what you're looking to do is still go best player available. I, a lot of times people come at me and they go, I drafted wide receiver heavy. Um, I love my receiver core. I go seven, eight deep. But I need, and when I, the moment I hear the word need, I already know where they're going in the email or the, or the tweet. It's I need X or Y, and then they, they try to justify leaping for that position in the rookie draft. And I just go right back to my historical studies and say, well, you should be doing this typically, or here's what the specific strategy for 2016 or 17 should be. Um, and so the, what your team needs at every given moment is good players and good assets. So you still can't, I always say, you know, and Doug Veach used to say this all the time, is you, you draft talent and trade for need. So if it aligns and your need is the best player, well, that's just gravy for you as a general manager. But other than that, you still need to draft. And, and sometimes 
I remember in 2014, uh, that specifically, I mean, it was hard to tell people, you still need to hammer wide receiver in your rookie draft, even though last year you hit it in your startup draft, because those are the best guys. And you saw the people that took Bishop Sankey. I was um, about or, to bring Sankey up. Yeah, and, and Sankey was that guy. It was Sankey, Sankey, and I mean, Hyde's been a disappointment, but part of it's been injuries for him. But if you pick those guys, you look back, like you said, Matt, you look back at your drafts, you are going to feel sick to your stomach because Allen Robinson was, what, 108, 110 in that year? Odell Beckham was in a similar range. Sometimes he went as high as five. But the point is... I say Sankey see went ahead of, like, Cooks, Robinson, oh, and... Yeah, he was top three or four sometimes. And, right, you couldn't miss. Other than my, my running joke is, unless you took Marquise Lee in round one, you could not <laughs> yeah. miss. That was the draft. You literally could pick anybody. And... So you, that's just a prime example uh, and an extreme and painful one of people who took need and took running back. So you can always trade for a running back. You, Danny Woodhead, you can pick up guys in season, take second or third string guys, or even run-of-the-mill starters. Matt Forte is cheap. Wait till you need the points in season to pay for the points because paying for points in June doesn't mean anything if he's not on the field for you in September. Some great points there. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, startup strategy talk and uh, really got some great insight from Chad and the UTH way, the UTH strategies. Let's talk now as we begin to wrap up about some specific players. Uh, we all have the June DLF ADP in front of us. Uh, that's not yet on the site, but it will be soon. We're not going to cover every single player in, in these rounds, but what we want to do is look round by round and kind of the ideal target you would you would take, and I know Chad, you talked about, um, you know, maybe you would trade out of round one, but let's let's say we're picking in each round, we're looking at sets of twelve players, so based on a twelve-team league, in that first round, who who would you be targeting? If it was early, um, I would be looking at Allen Robinson or uh, Mike Evans or Amari Cooper. Sort of, they all kind of fit. I mean, sometimes one of those guys falls to, say, 10 overall, but a lot of times one of them is going in the top three or four. So those are the three guys that stand out as having some production in their rear view, being extremely young, draft pedigree. They kind of check all the boxes um, as a core asset. Those are exactly the the three players I had uh, copying. I had highlighted. Yeah, no no surprise based on some of our conversations. We have have a lot in common when it comes to our, our strategy. Is there any point in the first round? You talked earlier about kind of the infusion of these young running backs. Is there any point in the first round where you would consider a Gurley or an Elliott or even Le'Veon Bell? It would have to be, the, the format would have to dictate. I did take Gurley in a startup. I think I got squeezed. I, I traded back a little too far. I think it was 10 or 11 overall. All the, the three guys I mentioned were gone. But I ended up trading Gurley um, before the startup draft even ended for the typical, you know, second and third round kind of picks and a future first. And I still ended up getting the trade down but with the player. So I, I just wouldn't. That's not a part of my my team building, and honestly, if I'm if I was sitting there, I would try to trade like crazy if if Gurley or Elliott were the quote unquote best players on the board for me. All right, Matt, what about you? Who are you targeting in the first round? And by that, you're saying for what they cost. You know, like I'd rather have Odell than those three you mentioned, yes, but he costs right. one to one as opposed to one oh seven or whatever. And yeah, I basically agree with everything you guys said. And then that second question. I don't know that I could come up with a scenario that I would end up with Gurley, Elliott, or Bell as my first player added to my team. You know, I mean, 
Would you rather reach if you're at 12 or something, and those three or whoever the young guys you liked in round one were gone? Would you just prefer to kind of quote unquote reach for a guy that that maybe is a second round ADP, just because that's how you build your teams? Yeah, but it would be Sammy Watkins, who's you know yeah. the second pick in round one, so it's a <laughs> right. two-player reach. You know, yeah. maybe Alshon Jeffrey or Brandon Cooks looking at this list. So okay. I mean, th- those are a reach of three or four players. And obviously, if those three running backs are staring at me and there's nothing else I really want, I bet I can make some kind of trade. Exactly. Matt kind of already mentioned the second round. Watkins and Cooks are there, according to June ADP. And those, again, those are the guys that that I chose as well. Chad, what about you? Second rounders, who's your ideal player there? Ideal, um, value-wise, is Kevin White for me at that. I love the 2-3 turn this year. Um, We'll get into it with a few of the the round three guys, I'm sure. But but Kevin White's someone that I get a lot of of kickback. I mean, there's some real anti-Kevin White people out there, and I don't get it. Um, So the the 10-second soapbox is uh, number seven overall pick, prototypical traits, really good athleticism, put the tape on, and I don't know how you don't like him. And... Those guys don't miss in the NFL if you look at the historics of the NFL draft. So, I don't know. I'm all in. A little birdie in that works in the league told me that he has been phenomenal. Oh, that's shocking, right? Yeah, <laughs> sure. right. I mean, a lot of people liked him over Amari Cooper, and look at the price difference this offseason between the two. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, remember Keenan Allen had that great rookie year, and I remember having Allen, and I traded him for... DeAndre Hopkins plus a first because of, of people just reacting so strongly to the very beginning of their career. Yet mm-hmm. I looked at I looked at all the metrics and the tape and I was like, these aren't different players. Like, so why am I going to turn down such a premium to swap? And, and you know what, Ryan? When I look at these, you know, you have them bunched. People can't see this, but you, they have them bunched by rounds where there's yeah. 12 players highlighted. I almost look at it the opposite way. Like in, in this second group. I, I get, get my, my, my pen out and scratch out T.Y. Hilton, Randall Cobb, Lamar Miller. You're like, I'm, they're not going to end up on my team. I can handle well, why the other are you, ones. Well, why are you, is, there a, is there a philosophical reason you're crossing them out? It's a well, I guess question that's a wrong way to say that. Like, I mean, they could end up on my team, but how about more, I'm excited to cross them out for somebody else to take them in yeah. this area. You know, like, it's going to take a lot for me to pull the trigger on Randall Cobb well, you're paying for what they already two. did, and you're paying for... Right. They can't really move up. Like, we've already kind of seen big stuff from them, and they almost need to rebound, whereas the guys that haven't done it yet, they're the ones that could zoom up to round one. Right, right, right. You know, White could easily be easily. the 110 next year. And right. start. So the third round is where... Uh, and, Chad, I'm interested to hear from you because you mentioned some third rounders you liked already. The third round is where I started to have some trouble identifying players. I like DGB. He's got a 33 ADP right now. You know, I think in most competitive leagues, he's probably going even higher than that, though. Who did you, or who would you be targeting in that third round range? Well, this is why I love the trade back, because I'm comfortable with, I mentioned White kind of closing out round two, but Moncrief, uh, Devontae Parker, Jordan Matthews and Dorial Green Beckham all are kind of red light players here in this zone for me because all of them have some prototypical traits. I think Matthews is just being completely ignored by the the di- for what he's done through two years. Um, just to kind of pick one guy and talk about him. I mean he's 
he has like so many traits you want, and he's getting banged on. And you kind of look at what he's done in year one and year two, and those guys again historically haven't missed. So I know there's a lot of storylines going along with Philadelphia right now, and there was just a blurb about him playing more in the slot and all this kind of stuff. But looking at it from like a bird's eye view. Uh, he's a very sturdy play. And again, he kind of fits. I'll take Parker and Moncrief ahead of him. But if I'm, quote-unquote, stuck in the mid-third round with Matthews or DGB, hey, that's that's a pretty good floor. And, and there's some players there, like Matt said, who I would love to see my opponent take in the third round. You know, Adrian Peterson, uh, Brandon Marshall, Jordy Nelson. Yeah, grab those guys in the third round. Hey, Matt, um, can I ask you a question while we're in sure. this third round? Is a question I keep asking people, Jarvis Landry, and I see people take him even in the top 20 of startup drafts, like Leonte Carew didn't happen at all. Can you kind of talk about what, I mean, the NFL draft is when teams tell us something, right? I mean, they take a lot of, you know, slobber knockers on the front line, and that means we're going to run the ball, you know? And so they take Carew on day two. Parker, he didn't do anything wrong his first year to be outlined as a breakout candidate. So... Carew's impact on Parker or Landry or that entire offense, what did that pick mean when you saw it? Well, that one to me is a little bit different. And, and first of all, Landry's somebody I want on my NFL team. I mean, a tough guy, brings a lot of attitude, good after the catch, physical, more so than I want on my fantasy team for what he cost me. And I think his best fantasy years probably are gone. And what I think is happening in Miami is – Okay, Tannehill is either has not been coached very well by a slew of different guys, or he's a Michael Vick coach killer, and we're going to take the final straw and go get Adam Gase, and we are do everything possible to surround Tannehill with as many different guys as we possibly can to make this offense and our quarterback work. You know, we are married okay. to Tannehill, and if that means taking an extra running back, which it kind of did, I'm not a Drake fan, if that means adding a tight end, which they did, or Laramie Tunsil, or Carew, or all of the above, I think it's all just set up for, let's make Tannehill not a bust. No matter what, everything we can possibly do, and then we can look at ourselves in the mirror a year from now and say, hey, we did everything possible. It wasn't like, and meanwhile, I think their defense is going to be terrible. But for this price, I'm not buying Jarvis Landry. I'm like, I'm not a big Jordan Matthews fan. I know you are. But looking at guys on this list, I'd rather have Green Beckham, I would rather probably, I don't know if I'd rather have Coleman or Doxson. I'm not sold on that class, but Floyd, I'd rather have. I'd rather have high, you know, Lockett. I would rather have Perryman, who's much going, going way later than these guys. So I can't see myself having Landry on my team. And if I did have him on my team right now, I think he's a great sell. So Matt touched on a couple of the fourth-round players, um, Lockett and Michael Floyd. Chad, what about you? Who in that fourth-round range would you be targeting? I like Lockett. Um, typically, I've seen him fall below what this ADP says in a, in a real live-fire draft. Um, I like Doxson. I mean, I think he kind of fits the building of you don't really care what happens for year one because Doxson is going to be behind a couple guys, but they're both free agents, and he could be the number one guy in 17. Um, so he's one that stands out. Here's where you start getting a lot of the unsavory veterans, I, I think, because you're hoping to maybe 
squeeze a year or two out of them. They can't really move up all that much based on their age and based on maybe some some checkered past situations on their profile. So, I mean, Michael Floyd may, might be a middle ground here. I, I get Ingram, but but Lockett and Doxon would be the two actual build around players I would take. At this point in this in this exercise, and and most likely in any actual startup draft, the three of us would participate in. Four rounds in, we've got four wide receivers. All right, um, shocker. Right, exactly. So um, just to give the listeners kind of an update, as far as quarterbacks through four rounds, uh, it looks like there's typically uh, two to three off the board. So Luck, Cam, uh, Rogers is, is close to that range as well. Tight ends were down to Jordan Reed coming off the board in the fourth round. And we're about 10 to 12 running backs deep. And, and so far, we're ignoring those other positions. So let's look at the fifth round. We'll do a couple more here. And again, this was a, a tough one for me to choose a player. I don't love the value of any of these guys. Uh, I think I know what Matt's going to say, but I'm going with Tyler Eifert. You know, the, the surgery, I don't think that's a long-term thing. We talked to Dr. Gene Bramel a couple weeks ago, and maybe he misses some, some early playing time this season. But Eifert in that fifth round range, uh, I'd feel comfortable with that. Matt, go ahead and get it out of the way. I know who you're you're going to say here. Yeah, I, I love who's going to say. I love Perryman. I'm still oh, okay. a big time believer, no doubt about it. Although I will say, at the end of this round, I'm really warming up to Michael Thomas a lot more than I was pre NFL draft. Um, there's a couple running backs I would start to consider in this neighborhood too. Maybe not right here, but I'm still very much a Deion Lewis fan. Uh, and Yeldon, you know, Yeldon is in the middle of the next round. Yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. Or Duke Johnson at the end of the following round of that round too. Uh, I, I'm certainly in the buying neighborhood here. There's a lot of players I like in this neighborhood. Yeah, this round four, later round four, round five, round six kind of range. I, I really move around quite a bit in a startup just because I'm either trying to get up and kind of finish it off. You mentioned Perriman. He's someone that I've gotten in this zone. But otherwise, I kind of bail back um, just because you, you see a dead zone. I actually have taken Russell Wilson. My zone, my line for him is usually late round five or round six. If Wilson is still there and it's like a six-point passing touchdown league, I will I will dip my toe in, in that water just because I think he's so undervalued based on the weapons and volume he's had to date. He's on a historic track if he ever gets both of those things aligning in the next couple of years for him as they maybe and hopefully open things up a little more. Um, but other players, Perriman, Perriman, I'm right on board with you, Matt. And Sterling Shepard, I'm not... I've warmed to him over the process. I started out pretty low on him in January, but it's kind of kept going up and up. So I, th I think it kind of makes sense here in round five, round six for Shepard too. Yeah, you mentioned Russell Wilson. His ADP in June is 53 based on our data over at DLF. Aaron Rodgers is just at 50. So I'd have to look at some of the historical ADP data, but that's the closest I can remember those two being in, in some time. So it's a pretty big age difference for people that you're kind of looking out for what they could happen, what could happen with their market value. I mean, I think it's a four or five year difference. Right. Rodgers is, is kind of holding steady. That's about the range he's been most of the offseason, but Wilson seems to be gaining some value. All right, sixth round. So again, you know, maybe we're starting to look at tight end with Eifert or, or running back with Deion Lewis. Maybe so. Maybe we have one other position at this point other than wide receiver. Round round six, Chad. Who are you taking there? 
This is rough. Uh, this is the worst group of 12. I mean, it stands to reason because we keep going down. Uh, but I would rather take probably about half of the players in round seven over the guys that you're, I have to choose from in, in round six. So I guess I'll take Yeldon of these uh, as a guy that I feel his floor over the next 12 months retaining his value is pretty good. Um, so he would be the default pick here for me. You're essentially saying you like the, the round seven guys more than the round six options. That's Easily. a clear clear trade down oh, opportunity yeah. for you. Trade down from round five or round six to like eight or nine and pick up a first. That's a pretty easy deal in, in startup drafts to execute with the right team. All right, and for me in this round, it's uh, some of the guys that you got, you all have already mentioned. Yelton, Duke Johnson is coming in at the end of that sixth round, and if I went anyone other than Eifert, I might consider Travis Kelsey here at this point as well. All right, this will be the last one we do. Let's look at round seven. Chad, we'll let you get started since you mentioned a few players uh, have your eye here. I love Devin Funches. Uh, I don't know why he falls as much as he does. Every once in a while early in the offseason, I saw him going around like five, but now that he's in six, seven, eight zone, uh, I love it. Um, he's someone that pretty similar as a prospect uh, across the board to someone like Doriel Green Beckham, and he has a much better quarterback. Uh, the upswing for Cam Newton as a pocket passer was um, a thing that I was monitoring very closely as a Funchess drafter as a rookie, and now that I'm accumulating more shares in, in year two. But all reports are that, it, that his head was swimming as a rookie, yet he still made plenty of plays on the ball. Um, so he's a glaring one, and, and look at how we're building our team. I mean, Funchess would be your wide receiver five or six um, with with the recommendations we've made just on this show based on ADP. So there's no pressure on Funchess in 2016 to do anything for your team, and yet he has those prototypical traits and a, and a good positive outlook, I feel. Really well said, and if this was going down... I probably would have taken Funches 20 picks ago, and it sounds like you got you would have too. You know, like yeah. there's no way, in my opinion, he falls to 79th overall. Global Sean McCoy, come on. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, Funches or Melvin Gordon. I mean, come on, uh, that's not even close to me. Latavius Murray. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, I don't want to do with him either. Uh, and the other one I would mention here is the guy at the very end of the round would be Jay Ajayi, and I could see me drafting Jay Ajayi. What the the last pick in the seventh round. And in week seven, he has 550 yards as a clear starter, and I sell him for something pretty good. All right, well, that was a, a fun exercise and gives us kind of an idea of how we actually build teams when we're participating in these startup drafts. Chad, just want to thank you again for, for coming on. We've talked a lot about UTH and your strategy. I know you have some really cool things going on over there, so just talk about some of the, some of the key features of UTH uh, for our listeners before we go. Absolutely, Ryan. Well, thanks for having me on and UTHDynasty.com and what we kind of did just now talking through startup drafts is a, is a key feature over there. Premium podcasts, we have three to four shows a week um, for audio content. Dynasty only, we're diving more and more into Devi as well. But we talk through drafts. I, I will take UTH subscribers that have been out there um, doing drafts and we'll discuss their startup, all the trades, all the moves, the team building philosophy for about an hour. And so hearing the stories are really the connect the dots of, of how to execute your best startup draft um, in, in the off-season forum. Um, so we have that. Also, the 2.0 version of the UTH Trade Calculator just launched, um, which does incorporate um, an ADP comparison tool, um, as well as the UTH values, 
Um, so a lot of, of key unique features are over there as a UTH subscriber. So thanks so much for having me on t this week. Sure, you've got um, you know just so many great features there for Dynasty players, and you mentioned your podcast. You know this is episode 22 for Matt and I. We're just getting started. I know you just have released your 250th episode. So you know anybody who does this knows how much work goes into it. It is a a labor of love, and 250 episodes is is just so impressive. So congratulations on that. Yeah, that's a big deal. That's very cool, Chad. Thanks, and, and we actually, for those that want the fastest dynasty hour in in the history, we did. We I listened. It was crazy. Months. Yeah, and <laughs> we don't we don't prep for shows ahead of time, but we did have to prep on who's going to cover what players uh, leading into that. But we thought it was just a way to celebrate dynasty in general, and just give a shout out to all the people that have listened over the years. Ryan, in case you missed it, they talked about 250 players in one hour. <laughs> it was like rapid fire madness. Yeah. No, I I did catch most of that. That was impressive, and and uh, for any of our listeners who did not um, look up under the helmet dynasty podcast and and check that out yourself. Uh, thanks again to Chad, and next week we'll be back with some more dynasty startup strategy. 